Good morning. My name is Miles Avalos. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 16 from the New American Standard Bible. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The word of the Lord. Good morning, church. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And before I get into the sermon, uh, I want to introduce a new element. Uh, On a regular basis, what we want to do is give a little bit of an update on uh, things related to where uh, our money is going uh, at our church and beyond. And uh, we're toying around with a name for it, but we already have family matters. That's when we discuss things that are pertinent to our family and important to our family, uh, church family. And so I thought maybe we'd call this Money Matters. We'll see how the staff and the leadership team votes on this one. Uh, But uh, I want to start off by uh, just giving us a little bit of a summary of some of the places that our money has gone in October uh, and slightly before that in September. Uh, The first uh, is that we raised uh, about $95,000 for free wheelchair mission uh, in the month of October. So that's a huge chunk of money. It surpassed our goal. Our uh, big hope was 100000 so we almost got there. So good job, everyone. Uh, that's lots and lots of chairs. There's details about that in your loop, if you got that. We also uh, <clears throat> connected with Nicholas Fund for Education. Uh, we hired Michelle, uh, and she's doing an amazing job of organizing and spacing out the ministry, and we're beginning to uh, envision together about what the future of children's ministry can look like here on Sundays, but also during the week. Uh, super excited about that, and uh, just sort of putting my uh, leadership finger on that one and um, recognizing that there's some movement and momentum there that's really excited, exciting. We were also able to bring Jared on full-time uh, this month, and uh, I don't know what he's doing, but I just feel touched on Sundays. I don't know. I was standing there trying to wipe off my tears because I was having a moment, and that keeps happening on a regular basis, and I don't know if it's Jared, but it's got to be connected to him somehow, and we're thankful that uh, he's here. And uh, some of you are excited about the Christmas choir that he's been leading, and I'm excited to see the fruits of that labor, and uh, I think he's got this sort of performance gene in him, and so I'm excited to see how that translates uh, here at our church. Uh, And uh, we were connected to Mary's place this month, and it was really meaningful. It's uh, very simple, but 
a profound task when you connect to uh, people who are going through a tough season in their life and you come in contact with your own vulnerability. Uh, I was reading during this month that we are all, at our best, only three tragedies away from homelessness. And so we know that, uh, but for the grace of God, there go I. And it was a good reminder uh, of that. Uh, In the future, uh, in this next season that we are in, we are thinking through particulars about the kids' ministry and uh, how to continue to grow and build momentum there. We're uh, making plans to put in the elevator, uh, focusing on how to continue the transition to uh, shift the weight more and more on uh, the shoulders of lay leadership in our church. As you know, scriptures teach very clearly that the job of paid staff is to equip the lay people for the work of the ministry. Our job is not to do it for people, but to champion the work and equip people to do it. And uh, still trying to figure out how to address our uh, opt-in culture. So that's a bit of a summary and a a glimpse into the future of what we are thinking about. Thank you all very much for uh, giving, for participating, for caring, for investing and sowing seeds in God's kingdom. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's uh, move to our sermon for the day. We are in a series called Witness in Christ, in Culture, and the basic thrust of the series is a call to bear actual first-hand witness to the person of Christ, and not just speak from hearsay, not just speak from our agendas, not to speak from our blind spots, but to be in relationship with Christ, be honest, and as we will um, uh, study today, be naked before him, and say, this is who I am, and this is my experience of Christ, and bring that testimony, that first-hand testimony, into the culture, more on that piece later on in the sermon. Today, what we're going to focus on is the nature of God's love. That God's love is all-seeing. There's nothing hidden from his sight. Nothing. There's nothing that's confusing to God. There's nothing that God actually ever learns. That's part of his immutability or unchangeability. He knows all instantly. There is perfect comprehension. He's not bound by time and events and space. And he's all powerful. He's able to move and be free uh, in what we call Reality. He is reality. He defines reality. In him we live and move and have our being. And what the scriptures teach us today is that this love that is all-seeing and all-powerful leads to change in us. It does the impossible task of changing the human heart. But the way it does that You would think if somebody is all-powerful and all-seeing, the way you effect change is via your power, your ability to dominate, to threaten others, to uh, bring to bear your ability to be absolute over a person or a scenario. But that's not how God works. What we're going to see 
is that because he is all-seeing and all-powerful, the way he affects change is through this very uh, penetrating, pervasive act called acceptance. As God accepts us, it opens wide the door through which transformation happens. I want to give you three words, three sets of words that are going to be super helpful for you, I think, because they are super helpful for me. The first is uh, accepting versus affirming. And what this means is that in most, if not all areas of myself and life, I accept things as they are. Because what can I do? And we'll go into what acceptance means. But... At the same time, I don't affirm most things as God's biblical ideal. Ideals exist. Perfection exists. And there are very few things where we say this is perfect. This is exactly how it ought to be. So there is the is and then there is the should. There is how things are, and then there are how things should be. And we are called with God to practice acceptance over most things. And yet, at the same time, simultaneously figure out whether we affirm that as the biblical ideal. Okay, that's the first thing. The second set of words is position versus posture. Position is where you are standing. Posture is where you are facing. Your attitude. So you can be a step away from the finish line, but if you are not facing the finish line, you're not going to make it. Keep walking. You're going to walk the other way. So what that means is that position and posture together create a powerful uh, passion in your life, but one without the other is irrelevant. You need both position and posture, and we'll talk about that. And third, we have safe and holy. And what we're going to say about that is, is unsafe people are fundamentally insecure and driven by their own needs. Holy people are secure, and they are able to be driven by other people's needs. That is, they are at a place where they are able to help other people. And I will say that most of the world understands Christians and the church to be, whether they're correct or not, they have this reaction to the church as being an unsafe place. And hardly a holy place. But the call is to be both safe and holy. And what I'm going to suggest to you today is that actually these are not opposite things. But in fact, only holy people are safe people. Okay? Uh, my uh, story that I bring to this sermon is that I am uh, what you would call a third culture person. I literally took a test on this, 
and I tested out um, as uh, just dead center third culture person. What that means is that we moved around a lot as a kid, so much so that I don't identify with one culture as my own. And so part of my drive is always looking for a place that I can feel safe, that is where I can feel at home. In high school, I felt very much unsafe and uncomfortable in my uh, family church. And so um, this was not acceptable to my family, or, and it was confusing to our community. But I left the church family, and I started going to a church by myself in the uh, inner city of New York. And I was on the search for a home. And then I went off to college, and uh, I was looking for a home in college, looking for a place that I felt like uh, I can be safe and be who I am and come as I am and experience God and spirituality in a meaningful and real way. And, and then after college, I started planting churches. I planted or helped plant six churches. And uh, I think underneath that, undergirding that, was my own personal desire for a place where there was acceptance and affirmation and position and posture done well, a place that was both safe and holy, a place where I can bring uh, my friends who were far from God and far from understanding what Christianity was all about. And then uh, my dream now for us as a church is to figure some, some of these things out. And I want to lead you through this uh, passage as a way to uh, increase our understanding of the vision of what we want to be as a church uh, family. We have uh, two points today plus a conclusion. The second point will be our application as well. So we'll move through this. The first is divine prerogative. And the second is human responsibility. Okay, first Divine prerogative with verses 12 to 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Uh, the first statement I want to make about these two verses is that I personally, as a human being, cannot imagine knowing everything. Comprehending full comprehension is beyond comprehension for me. It's crazy. Just the thought of understanding everything. If this screen behind me represented all of the knowledge in the universe... What percentage of the screen do you know? About half? This week, it was announced that scientists have created an eye drop that you put onto your eyes topically, and it will dissolve just the cataracts in your lens. Look it up. Just this week, we don't even understand our eyeballs yet let alone all the things we see through them. We can't see the tiny little dot on the screen that represents our collective knowledge and insight in this room. We know very, 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 very little. That's a fact. 
The second statement I would make about this, these two verses is, not only do I not know everything, but I cannot handle knowing everything. Imagine if you knew all of the thoughts of the person sitting next to you. It would make relationships very complicating. <laughs> Imagine you knew what the scripture says here. You are able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart of the one human being next to you. Your friendship is over. You understand? <laughs> we can't handle it. And the third statement I would make about these two verses is, I cannot bear knowing everything. Forget about other people, even about myself. I will turn around from a conversation and think about what I said or didn't say, or how I said what I said. And just the thought of how bad that joke was, or how distasteful it was, or how revealing of my true feeling that was, just the thought of one interaction I had with one of you causes me to stay up for an extra couple of hours thinking about that. Imagine, imagine I knew all of the dark places that exist in my heart. It would crush me. The scriptures teach that if we saw God, we would die. And I think part of that is because he is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And that kind of light shining, illuminating my heart would cause me to either want to kill myself or just die. I can't bear the weight of what all that is happening just in my own self, let alone the whole world. I cannot imagine knowing everything. I cannot handle knowing everything. I cannot bear knowing everything. This is God. Verse 13, I want to uh, get you to focus on this phrase, laid bare. This phrase, laid, laid bare. Uh, in, even in the English, it comes across, but in the, in the Greek, this is a term used. It's uh, sacrifice language, and it means that your neck is exposed on a block, a chopping block. That's what laid bare is. You're sort of laying down, you're tied, you're completely vulnerable. Before a God who sees everything, who understands all things, what else is there but to give up? But to be in a posture of total submission. It's like my dog bear. As soon as I just walk over to him, he just goes on his back. Because <laughs> he weighs 16 pounds. And he lives and moves and has his being by my pleasure. He knows this. So he just goes right to submission. Our necks are exposed. There's divine knowledge, divine power, and divine prerogative. This is what we would call his divine position. That God himself, he is perfect. Poorly reflected in this fallen world. There's a lot of imperfection in our world. But God, who is perfect, sees all, knows all. This is God's position, perfection. All-powerful, all-knowing. And where does this head? 
we have verse 14 and 15. It's a surprising conclusion by the author of Hebrews. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So there's a divine position of perfection. It doesn't head towards where we would head if we were perfect. We don't use our perfection to We would use our perfection to lord it over people, to have power and an advantage over people, to control people, to coerce people. This is how we would be. But God, in the fullness of his perfection, what does he do? He has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. His position of perfection leads him to a divine posture. And what's that posture? It's love. God's posture towards us is sympathy. God's posture towards us is identification, condescension, presence among us. This is what the theologians call incarnation. Emmanuel, which means God with us. He became one of us, and he was tempted, tried, exposed to his neck laid bare to the elements of this world, to the brokenness of our reality. His position of perfection plus his posture of love leads to verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's a formula for you, for those of you who uh, think linearly like me. We have position plus posture equals what I would call passion. You are perfect, and yet... You love those who are imperfect. And what that means, the word passion doesn't mean you really care about something. It literally means to suffer. The passion of Christ is the suffering of Christ. So a simple way to remember that is your passion is what you are willing to suffer for. And that's God's passion for us. He is perfect, but his posture of love towards us causes him to suffer for us. And here's what we know about this. A position of truth or perfection, God's biblical ideal. If that's your position, without the posture of love, you become irrelevant. If you know everything, if you claim to understand everything, if you claim to have insight, if you claim to have the corner on the truth about how life should work. And yet, you do not love. Your heart isn't overflowing with love. Then you are irrelevant because you don't have passion for the world. 
Think about that with God. If God was perfect, if God does see all things, and if our necks are laid bare before him, and yet he doesn't love us, who cares what he is? He's irrelevant to us. If God does not meet us where we are at, if he doesn't invite us into his presence, what good is he? If God claims to be the very resource we need and yet doesn't provide a way for us to receive that resource, namely himself, what good is God? God's willingness to suffer for us, to have passion for us, makes him relevant. Here's what acceptance is. Acceptance, by definition, my definition, is willingness and ability to work with what is towards what should be. If you are perfect, if that's your position, and yet without posture, the posture of love, what good are you? But if you claim to have the truth, if you claim to be perfect and you love, what do you do? What you do is accept. You say, okay, I understand what was intended. I understand what ought to be. The way I'm going to help you is by accepting you, embracing you as you are, inviting you into the throne of grace so that I can help you in time of trouble. Accepting does not mean that you affirm someone or something as the biblical ideal. There is a tension about acceptance, especially in groups that claim to hold some sort of moral truth. How do you accept? Well, what can you do? If you claim to have the truth and you love, your job now is to accept, all the while maintaining the tension between acceptance and affirming. They are not the same things. And this is what God does. When God opens up the vast treasure trove of his resources to us, is he in any less is he any less truthful is he any less powerful than he was before he offered help to us of course not god remains perfect he upholds his ideals for us but because he does that through a posture of love we are able to interact with God, who are able to experience beyond the receiving end of the very resources he claims he has for us. In fact, what I would say is the very reason God is able to invite us into his throne room without compromising his holiness is because he actually is holy. If God wasn't fully holy or as holy as he says, then he would be threatened by us. If God wasn't pure light, he would be threatened by the darkness. If God was afraid of us, 
then he would be insecure. But precisely because he is fully secure, he's able to say, come, you need help. And my touching you isn't going to contaminate me. It's going to actually flow the other way and be helpful to you. My holiness is what's infectious, not your sickness. So when Jesus walked this earth, what did Jesus do? He hung out with what society labeled and deemed as sinners. Jesus, when he saw the leper, what did Jesus do? He touched the leper. And did Jesus become unclean? No. What happened to the leper? The leper became cleansed. What would happen to Pharisees, religious leaders of that time, if they came even near the leper? They had proximity rules. They would become unclean. And yet it's Jesus who does the cleansing. It's his holiness that begins to spread. His posture of love allowed his position of perfection to be pervasive. That's how Jesus moved. That's how Jesus lived and ministered. That's the nature of true holiness. The reason the religious leaders of Jesus' time were so afraid of lepers and so-called sinners is because they were not actually holy. Their holiness was just a shell. It wasn't real. It wasn't substantive. It was just pointing to the true holiness that was to come through Christ. And so they had to be careful. They could not interact without being contaminated themselves. They were not able to accept. They did not know how to work with what was. That's not our call. Our call is not to live in the Old Testament of works, but in the New Testament of grace. I want to tell you that human judgment is born from insecurity and threat. Divine judgment is born from knowledge and love. It's two very, very separate things, which is why we have verse 13. Verse 13 says, the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God's eyes are the only eyes that matter. It's like we're in a courtroom, and he is the judge. He's the lone judge. How many judges are in a room? There's only one, and it's only the judge's eyes that matter. Again and again and again in Scripture, we are forbidden from judging. The Scriptures teach explicitly. Jesus himself saying, do not judge, meaning do not play God. Your eyes don't matter. Nobody is living for your eyes. Stop glaring them at people. Stop cutting your eyes at people. Stop being upset with people. Stop disapproving of people. Who cares what you think? Your job is to love. This is the teaching of Scripture. I know even as I say that, it creates tension in some of you. But, but, but. But what, but, okay, let's get to the but. I think it's God's prerogative to judge because it's his eyes that we live for. 
uh, give you a couple of examples from the New Testament of the eyes of God. By the way, that picture you saw, anybody know what that is? It's the eye of God. It's what NASA calls the eye of God. Okay? Um, so Mark 10 uh, tells the story of uh, a young man that we affectionately call the rich young ruler. And he comes, this rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I, I uh, have kept all of these rules since I was a child. I want to know how to uh, enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, go sell everything you have. And what Jesus meant uh, figuratively was to sell his spiritual wealth. He thought he was such a great guy because he had kept all these rules perfectly. And uh, Jesus says, you, you, you have to sell everything. And so the young man feels dejected by this, and he walks away sad. But before he walks away, uh, chapter 10, verse 21 says this. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, use your imagination for a second. Imagine Jesus, who knew everything. He understood. He had full comprehension. Remember, Jesus is able to discern the intentions and the motives of the heart. So while this exchange is happening, Jesus has full comprehension. Just my, the closest thing I can think of is like an 80-year-old, uh, when I'm 80 years old and I understand life very richly and deeply, and then there's like this five-year-old kid that wants to tell me something new about something they learned about life. And I just look at this little kid What do I do? What's my feeling? What's behind my eyes? It's just love. Love for this little kid whose comprehension is very limited. And there's, it's impossible to explain to this little kid all the truths about life. And all you can do is condescend to his level. And just look at him and smile and love. Just the posture of love takes over that moment without compromising all of the truth that's in my head. And that's what's happening here with Jesus. Jesus looked at him and loved him. What can Jesus do? And the young man turns around and walks away sad. What can Jesus do? What could Jesus have said to convince him otherwise? Jesus said all he could say at the moment. And the young man walks away, and Jesus loves. Another example found in Luke chapter uh, 12, and this is the famous story of the prodigal, what we call the prodigal son. It's a story of two sons and uh, of a wealthy father, and the younger son comes up to the dad and says, Dad, I wish you were dead so that I can have my share of the inheritance. Can you give it to me now so I can enjoy it? And the father looks at him. And now think about this. What is going through the father's heart and mind when the son comes up to him and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Can you give me my share? What's a father to do with wisdom and love and truth filling his heart? What, what, what's he feeling So he looks at the son, and he lets the son go. 
because letting him go was all that the father can do in the hopes of getting his son back. Because if he says no to the son, the son's resentment grows and grows and he loses his son forever. The only way at this point, since the son has now uh, made the ask, is to look at him, love him, and in wisdom and in suffering, release the son in hopes that he may come back. And then when he does, this is what happens. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of this state, verse 20. But while, this is much later on in the story, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Notice the direction that the father is facing. It's towards the son. But notice where the father is standing, at home, in the truth, in knowledge, in wisdom, in righteousness. But yet, look where he's facing, towards the son. That's the perfect picture of acceptance. This is what God is doing, saying, come boldly to the throne. I'm waiting facing towards you, my posture of love towards you. This is the love of God. Now, what is then our human response or responsibility? I have three application points for us. Number one is check. Check your posture to better inform your position. Now, there are politically and uh, spiritually charged contemporary issues in our time. I don't need to name some of them. You, f- you fill in the blank. What are the issues that are relevant in our time? What's your position on those issues? What is it? Whatever it is, unless you have a posture of love, your position is worthless. Your position is irrelevant. Your position is not truth at all because the ultimate truth is love. Love God, love neighbor. All other laws, Jesus said, are an extrapolation, trying to figure out how to do the loving God and loving people part well and better. And I'm telling you, you got to figure this out. It doesn't matter what your position is. If you are sitting here and you claim to know the truth, you claim to understand the Bible and to interpret it correctly, if you claim to have wisdom and the moral high ground, listen, is there a higher morality than love? What should your posture be? And unless you're leading with your posture... And then unless you're following it up with your posture, your position in the middle is irrelevant. Nobody cares what you say you believe if you don't love them. That is absolutely true. This is Romans 1 and Romans 2. That if you do not love, if your heart isn't weeping, if your heart isn't bleeding for people, if your care isn't there, nobody cares what you have to say. What qualifies you to speak? In fact, what actually makes your truth whole is your posture. Ask me, what is the first prerequisite for anybody to be able to speak to my child? 
It's love. This is how God feels about all of the uh, so-called lost people in our world. He loves them like his own kids because they are. And to have us, the church, claim to have a light and use it to expose their necks so that we can do what we humanly want, that's, that's anathema to God. It's completely misrepresenting who God is and how he would walk in such a time as this. So it's first, check your posture to better inform your position. Second, figure out. Figure out the difference between accepting versus affirming. Ask yourself, what is the biblical ideal? What is the wish, the dream that I have for future generations? What's plan A? Ask the question. You're allowed to have your dreams. You're allowed to have an understanding or your own grasp of what you think the truth is. You are. Now, figure out how you're going to accept people as they are so that you can actually be the resource you claim you are. If you believe people walk in darkness and if you believe you have the light, how do the darkness and the light come together? You got to figure this out. This is your job. This is part of you working out your salvation with fear and trembling. How do you work with what is towards what should be? In your workplace, in your friendships, in your relationships, in your family, in your own personal uh, self, the integrity of who you are. How are you going to do this? How do you accept people as they are? Fully embrace them while maintaining the biblical ideal. Oh, Peter, that's hard. Exactly. That's your job, though. You got to go do it. You got to figure this out. For those of you who say this is hard, have you read one book about a topic that you're struggling with? Just even one? I know most people have, and I ask all the time. They haven't even read one single book, and they claim to have a corner on the truth. Third, be. Be safe and holy. If you claim to be a holy people saved by God, and yet, yet, you're insecure and you're easily threatened and you get offended and upset and you're not a safe person. If you really are holy and your holiness is secure, then it allows you to get ever nearer to those you claim are unholy without fear of infection by them because what's infectious is your holiness which makes you a safe person. You're able to have the conversation, engage in dialogue. You know what Jesus did with the tax collector? He went and stayed with Zacchaeus for days. That's what it meant to eat with people. People reclined and they stayed. Hospitality was a big deal. 
And do you know what the religious people thought? They were pulling out their hairs, upset for days, knowing Jesus was in that house right there. How could he possibly recline with the tax collector? How could he possibly get so close? Well, because he was safe and holy. And guess who got saved at the end of that stay? You figure that out, how you're going to be safe and holy. That's you working out your salvation. That's you bearing witness in culture to Christ. Let's conclude here. This is our church's uh, vision statement. Evergreen hopes, because none of us arrive, we hope, to be a church, because that's what we are, a family, where people learn. That's our disposition about Jesus. That's our focus and his great love for us. That's his acceptance over us. That's his posture, where they can come as they are, where they can experience grace and forgiveness in a tangible way through relationship, where they can serve others, and be a light in the world. Parallel to this, here is our Hebrews passage. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How can we represent the throne of grace? By focusing on Christ whose neck was laid bare. And not only was it exposed, but it was cut and bled for us. His position, his posture, his acceptance, his truth, his safeness, his holiness, all of this together equals what the scriptures here call grace, that we are made holy by his grace, that we are healed by his grace, we are helped by his grace, we are accepted and affirmed by his grace, by his love for us, made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of the Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we uh, are laid bare before you. We know very little. And we ask for your help to help us to know what we believe and who we are and why and all that. And then figure out from there how to enter into the world and how to love this world and how to be a light in this world and how to serve this world, how to help this world. We can only do that if you serve us and love us and care for us first. So help us to experience your love and acceptance over us. And then I pray that that love would overflow onto the world in Jesus' name.